Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and today we're going to be talking about grading threat intelligence on a curve. Now, we chose that title because it had a fun play on words, uh, but the working title was more descriptive, saying that all threat intelligence is not created equal. So the goal is to dig into some of the unspoken or at least less talked about aspects of threat intelligence. And we're lucky today to get Drews McFarland to join us. He's the Senior Product Manager for Security and Analytics at Infoblox to help us do that. Thank you for joining us again, Drews. Thank you very much for having me. Not a problem and uh, really, really glad to have uh, your perspective on this. Because um, to start out, I want to get right to the heart of that original idea that we had, um, which is that not all threat intelligence is created equal. Now, there's some rumors and hearsay, you know, that, uh, you know, people have talked about this um, for years. You know, that's why I buy product A because I had product B, but a couple of viruses got through. So I'm switching to this other product, um, which might plug those holes, but you know, it's now starting to look like it may actually then open up other holes. Um, so uh, there was some studies done that I'm also going to just kind of lay this foundation for the audience. Um, there were studies done uh, by several universities in North America, University of San Diego, MIT, and others were involved in that. Um, and a similar study was done in Europe only about nine months ago with a half dozen universities from the Netherlands and Germany, and they would get open source threat intelligence, they would get the threat intelligence from several vendors, and then they started comparing them. And the biggest thing that all these studies came out with was there's very little overlap between them. So uh, yeah, you're shaking your head here. So uh, sounds like this, of course, th this is where you you play. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that uh, that CISOs in general have known this for years that you know no one single source of threat intelligence is going to be as good as all of them. I mean, you know, to your point, and you know, this isn't just this. I mean, this is kind of the the lesser known secret that you know the industry has kind of known, and that is that you know, you have these different sources, and there's maybe about twenty percent overlap between one source and another. Uh, there's a, you know, obviously that, that core that everybody seems to know about and everybody's got their own specialties and I won't go into who's better at various things than others, but, uh, as a result, you know, the, the people who have been in the industry for a long time understand that they need to have a, a really sort of biodiverse set of, uh, threat intelligence and, and set of security tools in order to be able to make sure that they're covering all the different holes that they may have inside of their organization. Now, I go back, uh, you know, for those who actually have seen this video, you can see that I've lost most of my hair and uh, I've been around for a while. And I recall when I got into the industry <clears throat> back in the mid 90s, some of the uh, companies that I was working with, they were some of the early ones that had everything. They had email security, web security, they had endpoint security, server products. And they had a hard time selling the whole package into large corporations because the large corporation said, no, I want one vendor on my email. I want another vendor on my web gateway so that if the email gets through and somebody clicks on something, I want another, another vendor's threat intelligence with the opportunity to block it. And just in case that fails too, I want a third vendor on their endpoint. And so they would, that was the way they would handle mixing different threat intelligence sources um, was because your threat intelligence came as part of a product. And today now we actually have open source and, and other uh, aspect or in other areas to get that kind of threat intelligence. Now that's a lot of what you work with, right? 
Yeah, and uh, and you know, to your point, you you obviously um, you know you don't necessarily want the same people coming up with threat intelligence for your email as the people who are setting it up for your firewall or as they're setting up for your IPS or whatever whatever different components that you end up having, because they're all going to basically reflect reflect the same view of the world. They're not bringing anything new into the you know into the into the mix. So if you get somebody who's whose job is really to focus on the email or focus on you know, different aspects, you're going to end up getting a much more uh, comprehensive solution. And, you know, and again, you know, like there are you know, not, you know, just like you said, you know, not all threat intelligence is created equal. Not all threats are created equal as well. And you end up having some threats that are better served by different components inside of your, uh, your threat arsenal, as well as different sets of, of threat intelligence. You really need that that broad view of the world in order to be able to make sure that you're you're defending your environment as, as well as possible. Now, some of this, you know, I look at market share data quite often for different security vendors. And, you know, one of them complained that, oh, yeah, 80% of, you know, financial institutions use us. And what that means is the other vendors don't have as much visibility of what's going on in financial institutions. Um, could that be one reason why certain vendors actually are seeing threats and able to then put those in their threat intel that others don't? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a degree of uh, um, you know, you know, a, a degree of this problem that is uh, based upon you know what is your you know, point of visibility? What is you know what angle are you taking from the world? You know, like we at Infoblox have a a unique perspective from a standpoint of that we have really good information from a DNS standpoint. A company that might be focused more on email is going to have a much more email centric view of the world and be able to protect you know, protect your email in potentially a, a much better way. So everybody is going to have a slightly different uh, different perspective, and that perspective is going to defend against uh, you know, different types of things. So you're absolutely right for those people who are like, we do better in financials. Well, if, if, if all of your customers are financial organizations, that, that's going to be really great for being able to protect that, that small you know, group of targeted attacks that might be going after those, but how effective that threat intelligence is even when you translate that over into retail um, may be completely different. So not saying that one is better or, or worse, it's just going to have different you know, different degrees of value in the different contexts that you're deploying it. Yeah, and there used to be a big difference between um, the kinds of threats that you would see in a corporate environment versus the kind of consumer threats that you would get. But um, even before the whole current pandemic and work from home, most successful organizations realized that their employees had to have a blend of life and that on the network, they would during the day be checking their personal email and they were being exposed to consumers. So organizations, you know, with an enterprise were now facing threats from, you know, that were both consumer as well as professional business. And, um, you know, we're, we're seeing threats of all kinds that they have to deal with. So, um, you know, I can understand where some vendors who actually had a huge commercial um, or I should say uh, consumer uh, base might have been a little bit better at those kinds of threats versus the ones who are focused 100% on commercial threats. But for a company, um, and I'm this is I'm going to just listeners beware. I'm leading this question here. Um, since um, a company like Infoblox doesn't have a consumer product, um, how do we get those kinds of of pieces of information to put into our threat intel that we give to customers? So, um, you know, obviously there's a, you know, there's a great degree of, I mean, like you, you actually kind of uh, touched on part of it, which was 
as much as you know, anybody would like to think that they operate inside of a particular silo, and and we definitely you know have a have an operational visibility into enterprise organizations. As you mentioned, the 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 especially in the last year, the amount of gray area that there is between consumer and um, and commercial is is kind of getting grayer. Uh, people do a lot of work from home. They they do a lot of uh, you know a lot of other things that aren't specifically geared toward my I'm going to Google Sheets and I'm going to Salesforce.com. You know, there's a lot of other things that end up happening just because the the workplace has become a little bit less uh, well defined. So we're having a, le a level of visibility now in the last couple of years that we haven't necessarily had. So that helps. Having said that, you know, we still do actively go out there and pursue. Um, you know, as many sources as we can, but we understand that, you know, like no one organization is going to be as, you know, good at everything. So, you know, we consider ourselves part of a nutritious breakfast. We're not the entire thing. We do certain things exceptionally well, and, uh, and we understand that we are going to be working with an entire ecosystem of products that are going to be able to help you uh, protect what you're going to end up needing to protect. And we think that we complement some of those other devices very well. Now, on the threat intelligence, pure threat intelligence side of things, um, one of the things I liked about Infoblox was that because um, every vendor does this to some extent, but Infoblox is totally transparent about it. Your security product, um, you know, there's different levels of it and it comes with different amounts, but everyone you list the sources of threat intelligence that comes with that package or with that, that offering. You're upfront that you know, your highest package has like more than two dozen different threat intelligence sources. Um, yeah. Is that just because of the overlap or is it because different feeds are more appropriate for different kinds of threats? There, there's a lot of, uh, of different reasons. And, and so you, yeah, you mentioned a couple of different things. Number one is not, uh, yeah, as, as your the, the entire title is, not all threat intelligence is, is uh, created equally. Um, there are certain categories or types of threat intelligence. And when I say types, I don't mean from a, a, you know, from a really basic level in terms of format. You, know, like you can get threat intelligence from a standpoint of here's a list of IP addresses or here's a list of, of host names. And the thing with, you know, when you think about what are the most basic types of threat intelligence that you get, you get you know, IP addresses, host names, domain names, you know, URLs, uh, file hashes, et cetera. Uh, each one of those are going to have a certain, you know, like a time to live. Uh, a, an IP address, for example, is very ephemeral. Uh, you know, it's going to you know, come on uh, online. You can block it if you want to, but that is probably going to disappear and move on pretty quickly because it's a very easy thing for you to to be able to gauge. As you go through, host names or you know, have a little bit longer of a time to live because you can shift the IP address from one to another, and the host name is uh, is still applicable. URLs, uh, you know, once you have a, a, a URL, that URL, if it's bad, it's going to probably stay bad versus an IP address, which may end up being good tomorrow or even maybe good at the time when we issue it because an IP address can be shared by a number of different hosts. So, you know, each one of these, each one of these things, as I mentioned it, kind of go in in terms of, you know, how ephemeral that data is, you know, how long does it have to have to live? Uh, and it also as you kind of go scrolling you know, down that list, so you, so you go from IP address to host name, to URL, to file hashes, et cetera. Now you're also talking about going deeper and deeper and deeper into the packet 
and needing to be able to uh, extract more data uh, in order to be able to say, yes, this thing is, um, is bad or no, it's not. An IP address is exceptionally easy to be able to tag, you know, like this thing is bad. If you have to reassemble a file so that you can create a file hash, you're going really, really deeply into the packet to be able to uh, see what's going on. So there's very specific tools uh, that, you know, that are able to do that. And what you don't want is you don't want to be wasting those tools there, expending a, a high degree of, uh, of system resources to try to do what they need to do. You don't want them wasting their time with the simple stuff. So you know, there's a whole lot of reasons why you may want to send certain types of threat intelligence to certain tools and certain uh, types of threat intelligence to others. Part of them are, do you even want to block this at all? If it's an IP address because of the ephemeral nature, because it has a high risk of of potentially being something that's also good. You know, it's definitely malicious. We know that this file, you know, this IP address in this certain circumstance is malicious, but there may be other hosts that are associated with it. So there's a risk that's associated with blocking the IP address as opposed to blocking something that might be a little bit more, uh, you know, razor, uh, razor focused on, uh, on exactly what the threat was. Every customer is going to have a balance of how you know, how sensitive they are to being, you know, being compromised versus how sensitive they are to potentially blocking something that, you know, may, they may not have wanted to block. So, and every customer is a little bit unique. They have to make some of those decisions. So we slice and dice some of our threat intelligence from exactly that standpoint that you can, you can block this set of IP addresses and to the greatest extent that we have, we have made sure that there, you know, if you block these things, you're going to be safe. But there's a slightly higher risk to doing that because of the ephemeral nature of IP addresses. Um, you know, you, the customer needs to make that decision as to whether or not they're more worried about blocking something inadvertently or letting something go that may have been potentially malicious. So we provide the the data in different formats in different categories for exactly that reason, so that the customer can make their own decision as to how sensitive they are to both of those potential eventualities. Sounds like a, like you're investing in the stock market. How sensitive are you to uh, to taking risk? risk. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, and letting something through, but hey, then, you know, we don't, we're not gonna block anything that you really wanna go to, um, unless we're really sure, but you might accidentally get to some stuff because we're trying not to impact your productivity. Um, so that's on the one side. And the other side is like, we'll make absolutely sure you don't get to anything dangerous, but we may also block some legitimate stuff and give you some false positives along the way. That's that's the spectrum you're, you're describing. Precisely, precisely. And it's a, and it is going to be very dependent on your individual organization. If, uh, if you're an organization where most of your customers are consumer, you may want to err less on the side of, uh, of catching everything and more on the side of making sure that you're not blocking some website inadvertently. Yeah. And then, of course, there's, you know, different departments, um, you know, uh, maybe their use of the Internet is such that, well, they aren't supposed to be using it hardly at all because they're in a huge data entry pool. And, you know, so we can lock things down more there. But over here, we're talking executives and, and salespeople that may be doing all sorts of things and we don't know. So we have to be less restrictive there in order for them to maintain their job. Yeah, that productivity versus security balance, that, that has never disappeared. And the prime example of that would be if you go back a couple of years ago to the, you know, like the target uh, 
breach that happened on their point of sales machines, those point of sales machines, their, you know, their communication behavior should have been exceptionally uh, deterministic. They knew exactly who those things were supposed to be talking to and who they weren't. You can block IP addresses. You can block a lot more on something where you are absolutely sure that this is how these devices are supposed to behave. You can set up a, a lot more strict blocking rules in that circumstance than you would in a circumstance like uh, where there's a consumer or maybe even a guest network where yeah. people, people could potentially be going anywhere. So you know, a lot of it, as you mentioned, is going to depend on the environment that you're that you're going into and how sensitive those are. Uh, you know, something where people are, you know, these devices are directly dealing with I, with um, you know, credit card numbers, dealing with finances, and and they have a very yeah. deterministic way of being able to communicate. Those are prime examples of where you want to be exceptionally strict in terms of what types of uh, traffic you allow. Yeah, and you you actually were talking about devices. I want to make sure our listeners pick that that nuance up because normally in security we're used to putting on policy and rules based on users, but in this case we're talking about devices as well. So there might be somebody. Um, matter of fact, in my grocery store, I you know been shopping there for years. I know a lot of the people um, by first name, and they know me, um, and. Some of them are working in a back office periodically, and they're doing all sorts of stuff there as a user. But when they're on and and help out because oh, we need more checkers, and they'll come out and help at the checkouts. And on that device, their rights should be tighter. So we're talking about applying threat intelligence through more intelligence use of policies that can make a differentiation between what device the user is on, as well as which user is using the device. Uh, another angle of this matrix as well, kind of bringing it back to how we've sliced and diced our, our threat intelligence, is uh, if you think about the MITRE kill chain, you know, you have this, this concept of, you know, every attack kind of goes through various different steps uh, from, you know, the initial just kind of doing reconnaissance, trying to figure out what they've got, all the way through this point where they actually deliver some sort of payload, you get compromised, and now you're doing internal spread, maybe some data exfiltration. So, you know, there's, you know, if you want to, from an overly simplistic standpoint, divide those things up into two different phases, they're the pre-breach, you know, the things that are done that if we, you know, if we see it and we block it, that's great. You don't have to do anything else. You know, there is this uh, potential, there's this website that we knew hosts uh, malicious content. Uh, we blocked the, the user from being able to get to it and have a nice day. There's nothing else to worry about. But then from the point of the breach onward, You've got things like command and control, you have uh, DNS tunneling, you have uh, data exfiltration, and all those are indicators that, that you have actually already been breached. And we can block that specific you know, instance. You know, we can block the DNS tunnel, we can block the data exfiltration, and you're still compromised. So we try to you know, separate things also, not just from a standpoint of how risky the data is, but also into the different categories. Is this command and control, is it data exfiltration, is it phishing? Uh, because each one of those is gonna basically help you from a standpoint of, you know, if I'm an incident responder, what do I need to chase down? I don't wanna chase down threats that were blocked uh, that I don't have to do anything about. Versus, you know, here's a threat that, you know, it's command and control. I blocked the command and control, but there's still somebody that's infected out there. I need to go out and remediate this laptop because I'm going to keep on seeing that command and control until it either gets through or, you know, or we'd end up going through and remediate the, uh, the threat. So we also do it from that standpoint too. I was going to say, that's a big difference between, you know, your traditional web gateway, um, 
because you know those you typically are blocking by category um and you just have this category called malicious you know um and um but you're actually saying depending on how it's malicious may also be important because we've been talking about blocking and there's one more thing i want to talk about blocking and then i want to go beyond the blocking you actually already kind of hinted at it um on the detection side detect that you've been breached but on the blocking side there's also a lot of stuff that people need to block uh, depending on their industry, uh, government regulations, and so forth. And there are feeds for those as well. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, so yeah, there, yeah, we've been primarily talking about threat feeds, you know, like uh, threat intelligence and uh, you know, you know, uh, things are basically, we know that this thing is bad. But there's an entire category of, uh, of feeds and, and intelligence feeds that we have that aren't necessarily pointing at something bad, but it might point at something that from a policy standpoint, you may want to be blocking as well. So one example of that are maybe embargoed countries. You know, if you have a, you know, if you're in a government organization or or something that where that is important, you can block uh, communicating to websites that are hosted, for example, in in Iran or, or one of the embargoed countries. We have yeah. regardless Eastern of European the, nations. regardless of the TLD, even this, though it says .com, it may be yeah. in any country anywhere in the world. Like you said, they can move to different IP addresses. Exactly. For some reason, the, the people who are actually making the threats don't really care so much about what, what host name or domain names that they use. <laughs> They'll use whatever is actually applicable. Uh, and then, you know, you know, so Eastern European is another one. So there's an entire set of threat intelligence or sorry, I use the word threat of intelligence feeds that we have. They're actually more policy oriented than they are uh, threat oriented. These aren't necessarily bad sites. They're sites that from a policy standpoint, you don't want your users going to. And then, um, you know, we've been talking about this. Uh, one more point I want to highlight for, for listeners. We've been talking about all the different feed sources that we get. Um, now, some of those, Infoblox actually, you know, has its own threat research team, uh, the Cyber Intelligence Unit, um, which is based out of uh, Washington State, which uh, is where a lot of new threat intel ta uh, uh, technology is coming out of. So I thought that was an interesting uh, uh factoid, but they uh, they curate a lot of this threat. Why would they curate some of this threat intelligence rather than just, I mean, you're getting it from a trusted third party and rather, why not just roll it out? Well, I mean, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's obviously there's a lot of public domain sources and, and that's going to be, that's going to be good. I mean, it's, it's uh, obviously has a certain degree of value, uh, but it, you know, it's not necessarily high value. Uh, and the reason is, you know, like once something has become exceptionally well-known, uh, you know, often the, the threat actors are going to go ahead and move on because they know that they've, you know, the gig, the gig is up, we've been discovered, we're going to go ahead and, and move out. <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, the threat intelligence that we generate on our own, it's, it's stuff that we've had to, you know, harvest ourselves. It's, it's um, you know, might come from, you know, uh, digging through, uh, you know, some, you know, spam or, you know, basically, you know, uh, malicious emails that, that get sent around and then we're able to extract the, the malicious actors, you know, the malicious binaries. And then from there, we can analyze those things and determine, you know, who are, who are these, uh, you know, this malicious malware, or the, uh, who is that actually communicating with? So it's not so much that we're curating it and we certainly are curating it, but we're also, you know, just kind of going out there, finding it, discovering it, looking at the trends when, um, when we saw you know, COVID start to become a thing, uh, we started seeing a, a large amount of activity of people trying to capitalize 
on, on the fact that COVID was occurring to create uh, you know, emails that people would be you know, wanting to click through or you know, a lot of websites that came up that, that you know, tried to encourage customers to or users to, to click on things that they wouldn't normally click on because of that panic. So we go out there, we're actually generating this, this threat intelligence on our own based on our own research. So you know, there's a curation aspect as well that goes into making sure that that we're not telling you to block something that's potentially you know good or, or or things like. But there's a lot that goes into just going out there and doing the grunt work to try to figure out you know where the malicious actors are out there, and uh, and you do that through a, a variety of you know machine learning algorithms and research and and just uh, grunt work as well. Yeah, I remember in the uh, again back uh, in the early days, like. 10 years ago, uh, I would uh, get feeds from a number of public sources and some of them, the way they, their, their filtering wasn't the best. And occasionally I'd find that they were blocking IBM.com because someone somewhere got an email from IBM. They thought it was phishing, reported it as such, even though they'd actually probably, you know, gone to a web page and checked a box that said, sure, contact me, but they didn't remember it. And so, yeah, the curation is, is key. So these are some of the things that help reduce the false positives. I think it was great yeah. that you highlighted that, you know, we're still never going to get rid of all of them. Um, yeah. And well, there, there's a lot of you, know, like you, you go into, uh, you know, what I was talking about earlier on with command and control. I mean, just, you know, because the threat actors want to try to get through as much as possible, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to try to utilize uh, environments that, you know, where they know that they aren't going to be able to get blocked, and, yeah. and we've seen some people out there literally monitoring certain Twitter feeds, for example, uh, looking for the command to to come through from there to take whatever action that they want to do. And you can't block Twitter in that circumstance. You can be a little bit more uh, systematic and and try to block that specific account or specific uh, calls to try to find that information. But again, you know, like there's there's a there's an entire host of stuff that we know about. That's just not practical to block because it would be too disruptive uh, in terms of how things are operate, especially with things like you know, Dropbox and Google Drive and things like that uh, out there. You can't necessarily block everything that's malicious because a lot of those things are uh, potentially have a lot of a higher degree of utility than they have of anything else. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are getting close to the end of time. And um, so we'll have you back for a part two, because we focused a lot on the, the the blocking aspect. How do you get good threat feeds to stop things from getting through in the first place? But threat intelligence has an even bigger role to play um, to help you identify when things have gotten through and uh, helping you just investigate. Um, you know, once you've had a breach, there are a lot of questions that have to be answered and threat intelligence plays a role there. So we'll have you back to, to go into what's next. Um, so thank you very much though for your time today, Drew. So appreciate having you. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. And thank you to all of our listeners. Um, and you know, join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk.